You're listening to the Economics Review Podcast with your host, Adi Golcha. From Congress to Wall Street and finance to philosophy, tune into the Economics Review to hear from world-leading experts on current events and cutting-edge research. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is an organizational psychologist, a TED speaker, and a senior lecturer at the Norwegian Business School. Holding a PhD in economics, he's the author of several books, including Learning from the Future, What We Think About When We Try Not to Think About Global Warming, and his most recent book, Tomorrow's Economy, A Guide to Creating Healthy Grain Growth. It's my pleasure to welcome to the show, Dr. Per Espen Stocknes. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Pleasure being here. Firstly, as always, I wanted to start by asking you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background. Yeah, my name is uh, Per Espen Stocknes, and I'm working at uh, Norwegian Business School. Um, started out in uh, clinical psychology, where I transitioned into organizational strategy and uh, executive team development. And then gradually, um, I wanted to address more of the sustainability issues in the world on the late 90s. So I decided I would look into um, sustainable economics and um, the green growth issue. And um, from there, I've been developing executive programs, uh, teaching um, sustainability business cases, sustainable business strategies uh, over the last 10 years or so. And I'm also responsible for the executive MBA program on sustainable business in Oslo, Norway. Okay, well, that's quite a resume. So I wanted to start by going over the five psychological barriers to climate action that you mentioned in your TED Talk before moving on to your book. Um, so the first barrier that you, you discuss is called distance. And you state that, quote, the climate issue remains remote for the majority of us in a number of ways. We can't see climate change and the heaviest impacts are far off in time, in the coming century or farther. Despite some people stating that global warming is here now, it still feels distant from everyday concerns. So can you explain this first barrier and how you go about resolving it? Sure. Um, so you touched upon it from your quote there. Uh, it's invisible, it's abstract, uh, it's slow moving, and its uh, effects are usually far away and somebody else is responsible. <laughs> so all these dimensions of uh, psychological distancing add up to it's not feeling as a near, personal, urgent issue. Uh, it's far away in time, far away in space, far away in responsibility, and far away on impact. Hence, uh, it translates into a lower priority for me, and hence also for politicians or business leaders. Uh, on the list of one to ten top concerns, climate change usually comes pretty low on that list on average. So that's the function or the impact of the distance barrier. So how do you go about resolving it? How, how do we sort of, you know, is there a way, you know, we, in, in the way politicians use messaging or the media, activists, that sort of thing to, to sort of get around this, this first barrier or at least, um, you know, mitigate the impact? Indeed, there is. And uh, the main issue is to making it uh, social. So as psychologists, we know that um, abstract and invisible issues 
don't uh, get as much attention as uh, what my friends say or my colleagues do or what my neighbor has on his house or what kind of car or bike or whatever. So the minute um, I start to make social comparisons or I look to what my peers are doing, then it feels much nearer, much more personal, uh, much more urgent. So there's a good number of studies showing that, for instance, that if um, my neighbor gets a solar panel on their roof, and particularly like now in a time with high power prices, for instance, in Norway, then um, uh, the, the the urgency or feeling, I want one too, um, is very strong. Um, and that eliminates the, the psychological distancing. Now it's no longer about the climate system or 2050. It's about my network, my colleagues, uh, the people I care about. That's what I mean with social and making it relevant to the social norms that we live according to. Okay, great. So the second barrier that you talk about is doom, um, which is one I think is especially pressing. You state, quote, when climate change is framed as an encroaching disaster that can only be addressed by loss, cost, and sacrifice, it creates a wish to avoid the topic. With the lack of practical solutions, helplessness grows and the fear message backfires. We've heard that the, quote, the end is nigh so many times that it no longer really registers. So this is something, you know, we've discussed on the show in the past that for the last 30, 40 years or so, we've heard, you know, all number of sort of, um, you know, doomsday predictions. Um, you know, you, you can't turn on the news these days without some new climate study that says that the whole world is going to be underwater by 2040 or whenever. Um, so, yeah, tell us a bit about this, this sort of a apocalypse fatigue issue, as you call it, and how people in the media or other activists can, can sort of go about getting around it. Sure. So scientists and climate communicators believe they have to shout alarm all the time because um, the climate science facts are alarming. However, they underestimate the psychological cost of this or the impact of it, which is that first people habituate. So like the story of the boy who cried wolf, the 10th time you hear about it, the effect is very little compared to the first time. Second, if I experienced some kind of fear or guilt or uncomfortable feelings the previous time I heard about it, the next time I'll expect, or the brain expects something similar. And uh, it sends me a warning that, uh-oh, this is um, going to be painful. So um, we are try then try to avoid the topic. So I may switch off the channel or I'll go to some other web page or just uh, zoom out to avoid uh, taking it in again. So the first is called habituation. The second is avoidance behaviors. And the third is stereotyping. So it's very um, tempting to kind of uh, say, oh, here goes the, the climate hysterics again, or um, this is just the end of time uh, types, uh, or the goddamn tree huggers or whatever other stereotype I want to throw at the messenger. So we kick the ball. Um, sorry, we kick the man and not the ball. And some of us even want to kick the girl, um, which is uh, sometimes Greta Thunberg or another teenager girl who is um, scared shit about their future. So the point is that the doom, overuse of doom backfires. Okay. Um, and so how, how can, you know, if, if there are people in the media, scientists, activists, you know, they, they want to still be able to convey the message, obviously, you know, they, if they find some sort of alarming, um, new, new prediction or, or trend or something, they still want to be able to get the word out. But how do they do that without causing, you know, people to just say, Oh, another doomsday prediction? They do it in, 
two main ways. Uh, first, it's the choice of framings, as we call it. Um, you can choose the framing of ap apocalypse and a boiling earth or hell, or other people are choosing the framing of sacrifice. So you have to sacrifice your meat or your plane ride or whatever. Or they sometimes uh, also speak about all the costs that related to stopping the petrol uh, or cut down uh, on the petrol use, loss of jobs and higher uh, oil prices and expensive gas, etc. So with framing such as doom, cost and sacrifice, then you're bound to lose uh, in terms of inspiring people to change. Hence, you need a balance. Um, we shouldn't avoid the alarming climate facts, but immediately after mentioning them, one should add at least three opportunities or three positive framings. So um, the incredible um, cheap and efficient transition to electric mobility brings down the need for so much uh, fossil fuel. Uh, also, if we switch to uh, less grain-fed red meat towards more plant-based gourmet foods, that makes your health better. Also, that if you uh, become more energy efficient, you reduce the risk for future uh, costs coming into you, such as with a sudden gas spike or whatever. So these three framings, the risk framing rather than catastrophe, the um, opportunity uh, rather than the sacrifice, and also the health benefits um, relative to uh, the, the death and uh, suffering and the, the sacrifice. That's the neat shift we need to do from, from having mostly threats and, and um, doom messages to uh, a mix of opportunity, risk management and health benefits. So make sure that when you speak about these issues, people are left with an impression that there is so much we can do that actually turns this around from a threat into a larger opportunity. So that's the framing issue. And the other way to deal with it is a better story. So um, we need a story about how um, we, if we continue with the 19th century, sorry, the 1900s type of industrial development, we will both break uh, the climate and uh, the, the wildlife uh, into a story of how we make better lives for humans everywhere increase well-being while bringing down our footprint. So we can do that with the cities, we can do it on state level, not least on corporate levels. So the leading corporations, the green growth companies such as Tesla or Solar Edge or um, Ushted or QuantumScape, all these companies are grabbing those fantastic opportunities and turning them into jobs and um, a new direction for our economy towards well-being for everyone. And if I can really feel that we now have left the grey industrial age behind with its uh, dreary jobs and assembly lines into a smart, digital, dematerialized and clean society, that is the big story we want to be part of. And what is your part? What is this company doing? And what is this guy doing, this lady doing? If we can tell lots of these stories about people grabbing these opportunities to co-create that well-being future, then most people we want to be part of it. And that way we avoid the doom barrier and some of the identity issues that we'll get to later. Okay, so that brings me to the third barrier. And this one I think will hit home very close for, for many of our listeners, which is cognitive dissonance, um, which you explain by writing, quote, if what we know conflicts with what we do, then dissonance sets in. But by doubting or downplaying what we know, we feel much better about how we live. 
So the issue with cognitive dissonance, the, the cognitive dissonance barrier for me is that it's, it's very much of an everyday thing. Like, I mean, every time you drive or eat a hamburger, you think, well, um, you know, you might know it's, it's probably not ideal, um, for, for environmentally speaking. But you know, you what what impact is your one hamburger going to have? You know, when we're emitting <laughs> millions and millions of tons of, of carbon dioxide, or you know, if I choose to drive to the supermarket instead of walk, you know, it's is it really going to have it? Is it really going to change anything? So there's sort of that that issue, I think, with with cognitive dissonance. So can you can you tell us a bit about this and and you know what your advice sure. for people who might find themselves in the dissonance position? Uh, absolutely, and you did such a brilliant job, Adi, in, in pronouncing all of that, <laughs> that I'm not sure how much I need to add, really. Um, so, um, the thing is that um, when there is this conflict between, as you say, what I know, uh, I know about the climate science and the emissions, and then it's so convenient to get into your gas guzzler and get some gas or get a, grab a burger on the way, and it's so hard to do all those things that you should do, then immediately the, the dissonance kind of sets in. And the effect of this is that um, my thinking and attitudes then tend to uh, slide back into what I'm doing rather than what I'm knowing. And over time, this makes most people more negative to clean energy or sustainability issues because they are living unsustainably themselves and they are aware of it. Um, so we should rather turn that from being a problem or a backlash into being an opportunity. So if we with um, nudging, and uh, what is called choice architecture make the most climate most climate friendly option the default so let's say that there's a big traffic jam but it's easy to bike into town so i can with my electric bike get into work quicker with on bike than in sitting in my gas guzzler it's more um convenient the e-bike the e is just there and it goes quicker um, then more people would do that or if it's easier for me to have um, solar panels on the roof because there is a, a supplier who does everything uh, and I, all I have to do is to give my address and then uh, suddenly I also see that my long-term power bill is tending downwards. All those things, if we can make it uh, the food and the mobility and the uh, household um, appliances and, and our buildings more energy efficient, so I don't have to think much about it, then suddenly behaviors will shift and attitudes will follow. So we see that, for instance, uh, in Oslo. In the beginning, people were very negative to electric cars, but uh, the moment they saw that uh, you could have some benefits like cheaper uh, energy or even access to um, the, the, the public transport lanes or whatever, you were quick getting quicker, then people stormed into it. They got the electric car. After that, they expanded that with solar panels on the roof, and suddenly, through uh, more sustainable behaviors, uh, attitudes uh, follow. And that's the great opportunity with uh, dissonance, turn, turning it in from a backlash towards um, uh, spillover effects, towards ever more behaviors. 
that sort of incentives point is is great you know just from an economics perspective as well um i from from what i remember from my college psychology class um you know the cognitive dissonance is one of those things where you can't really can't really get around it um just by just by thinking about it you know if your behaviors and your your actions conflict then one way or another either your actions are going to change or your beliefs are going to change um and and that sort of brings me to this next denial um barrier so you explained this one by by writing quote when we negate ignore or otherwise avoid acknowledging the unsettling facts about climate change we find refuge from fear and guilt denial is based in self-defense not ignorance intelligence or lack of information so this actually sounds quite uh, similar uh, to to the dissonance issue um so can you tell us a bit about this and your solution as well yeah so um it is connected with the dissonance. That's well spotted, uh, Adi. And um, uh, it is the case that when you've had dissonance for some years, uh, it all becomes automatic in the brain and suddenly it's become repressed, if you will. You no longer notice that you're giving, you're coming up with uh, self-justifications. So you may hear about or read about climate change on Thursday or Friday, but by Monday morning, you live onwards as if you never heard. Also, because it's a very social thing. Um, if I've picked up from my colleagues or family that we don't really speak about these things, then I don't want to raise it either because it becomes a very uncomfortable issue or conflictual issues. And we get ridicule and criticism and people start to feel bad about it. Um, so the way out of denial is um, to actually give people frequent feedbacks. So uh, if you do something, let's say um, you uh, have a, a meat-free Monday or if you go to work on, on in your office, there's a, a dashboard showing um, how, what's the footprint of uh, the building, of uh, the cantina or the restaurant. Um, how is are we doing better this year than we are the, the, where the previous year? So this is where the green growth comes in. Can we improve our resource productivity, not just our labor productivity, but also um, how much value we create relative to how much energy or other resources we use. So if we can have a quickly growing resource productivity, we're 7% better this year than we were previous year. Now suddenly uh, the climate issue is something you deal with. You're actually um, reminding people that we are making progress. And in doing that, it becomes much easier to talk about the issue and take it seriously that our footprint is too big However, since we are dealing with it, it's now um, being raised from being suppressed into our strategies and into our business cases and into the continuous feedback we get from our buildings or our food systems or energy systems that um, we're on the right track. So that's the way out of denial. Yeah, and then, so that brings us to the fifth and final barrier, which is identity. Now, this one for me was the hardest to sort of wrap my head around. Um, you explain it by writing, quote, we filter news through our professional and cultural identity. We look for information that confirms our existing values and notions and filter away what challenges them. Cultural identity overrides facts. If new information requires us to change ourselves, then the information is likely to lose. So this one seems like sort of a, a very grassroots, you know, very, very deep rooted um, issue that's that that sort of sounds to me like, you know, the hardest A to wrap your head around and be the hardest to change. So, you know, sort of explain, explain mm -hmm. a, a bit about this barrier and sort of the sh necessary, um, I think, societal shift in, in identity to get around it. Yeah. So uh, 
This is probably the deepest, as you say, and the hardest barrier to change, particularly in American society, um, where you had now the polarization going over the last 20, 30 years in particular, but even longer, uh, of course, going back to Reagan and, and the 80s. Um, so one of the most precise predictors of your attitude to climate change uh, is your um, values, your personal values and outlook on the free market. So if you have a free market ideology, then it's very strongly correlated with um, reluctance or negative attitudes to climate action, regulations, uh, carbon pricing, etc. And also climate concern. Um, so identity is um, how I see myself uh, as part of society in a professional way, but also in a political way and also geographically. So, you know, I could be a New Yorker as part of my identity, or I could be um, a, a Norwegian, or I could also be a psychologist, or I could be somebody who is pro-business. Uh, and then when climate activists or climate um, researchers or politicians say what we need is more regulation and more prices on and taxes on carbon. Then this round this runs counter to my value system, which is that government should be as small as possible uh, and market should be as free as possible. So if they are coming up with suggestions for more regulations and more taxes, then this science must be wrong or their thinking must be wrong. And now. Then, and also if they attack me as somebody who's, you know, working with the petroleum industry or a trucker or somebody who's uh, into to, to red meat uh, and, and claiming that I'm responsible, then I will feel personally attacked. My identity is now in question. It's no longer an issue about the number of tons of CO2. Um, so that's how the identity barrier works. It's no longer uh, facts or science. It's about these guys are criticizing me and then I want to fire back, which is, of course, fully understandable. And that just feeds the polarization. And um, the identity also drives me to find experts or news articles or studies from scientists that confirm my beliefs and facts and values. Um, so I will be using uh, confirmation bias and filtering out those that run counter. And I will read more and seek out those that confirm my values. So this is the really as you said, the deepest and most hard one to change because it's connected to my sense of self. Um, so we need to go back to um, values that are common in order to address this and large storytelling or stories where we can see ourselves as part of the solution. And that is, for instance, why the metaphor of uh, freedom energy is a very good way of addressing people. Um, because um, if I have solar panels on my roof, or I can trade power directly peer to peer with my neighbors, I have a battery, then I'm self-sufficient, which is a very important value, particularly for Americans. Uh, also, I'm free maybe from that big, uh, ugly uh, state or uh, monopolistic utility who's forcing me to be part of their um, uh, monopolistic uh, no choice uh, power system so if i can go um, 
uh, off-grid or have a local grid or have a local energy market based on our own uh, solar and wind production, then suddenly I'm playing along with those values that could otherwise um, turn me against uh, climate action. And the same thing, once you have your own solar panels on the roof or you're in your garden or uh, in the neighborhood, uh, then if I could switch from those big um, uh, fossil companies towards uh, running my own um, truck on electricity, like the new Ford F150 uh, series or uh, Tesla's uh, new, uh, uh, what's the name of that again, the, the big, their SUV, uh, suddenly I'm um, living my uh, frontier life uh, independently and free. Uh, on just the energy from the sun. So now I'm trying to create a story uh, and framings that do not challenge my identity, but see how we have a shared set of solutions that would be good both for me, uh, my city, my econ the economy, and for the air. And suddenly you avoid uh, raising that big identity barrier. So green growth and the whole book of tomorrow's economy is written in order to address that. How can we really create a more value-adding, more creative, and more resource-productive economy uh, quickly enough to improve people's life, give people more freedom, and at the same time not overstep the planetary boundaries, which will just destroy wildlife and the world of my own children into the future? You mentioned a very interesting point there regarding the connection between a belief or uh, support for the free market and a lack of belief, um, or sorry, a lack of conviction um, about uh, government action or government involvement in climate change. This is actually, you know, something that I have been exploring for a while. Uh, a few weeks ago, I had on Walter Block on the show. He's the the chairman of economics at Loyola, and perhaps one of the most prolific uh, free market advocates in the United States. I mean, he he's a, he's a self-identified anarcho-capitalist. Um, you know, so the the kind of person who calls for the the privatization of roads and highways and that's that sort of thing. And I asked him about this the sort of environmental issue. You know, how how he views it. And he told me that, okay, think about it like this. If I, if I take, um, you know, my, my garbage, my trash, and I go and dump it on my neighbor's lawn, um, you know, that, that's something we would view as a, as a crime, right? As an externality or, or, you know, this something that should not be permissible under the law. Um, but at the same time, what if I incinerate the garbage and send it over his house? Why, why should that be treated any differently? You know, and so I think that's, that, that sort of, Connection is, is very interesting. Um, hmm. and so, so what I try to propose here um, is that we should shift from just, um, say, speaking about externalities or criticizing the pollution uh, or having people uh, change behaviors to focusing on how we can uh, make more value by eliminating wastefulness. Whether you throw that garbage on the lawn or you burn it, it's also a way of wasting a lot of good resources. Uh, why are we wasting all, all the stuff? Uh, most the stuff we take from nature just becomes waste after nine, after one or zero times use. Actually, a full 90%, while only uh, less than 10% is used to create value more than once. So the big opportunity in this area is to create more value by converting our wasteful 
material streams into ever more value, redesigning products to be good before use, in use and after use so that they get back to the corporation who made it. They know how it was put together. They can use the same materials again, upgrade it, upcycle it to provide ever better services and products for people uh, with ever less um, primary materials extracted from the earth and everything can run on free energy from the sun. So that's the long-term vision. Make more value, better lives with much less waste. Reduce the wastefulness with 90% while doubling the value added or the value creation in the economy. And you can do this on a corporate level, on a city level, state level, and also probably with the help of government. But that's secondary. The big new story is to eliminate wastefulness and convert it into value. Okay, and that's sort of, I think, a perfect segue into your latest book, which is titled Tomorrow's Economy, A Guide to Creating Healthy Green Growth. So I think you sort of touched on that, that idea of green growth there in terms of, you know, uh, sort of, sort of, um, you know, a multifaceted approach in terms of reducing waste. And I think an interesting thing that you also touched on was corporations. So, you know, like, like I think building on sort of my, my last point about free markets and sort of that connection, I think, and I'm pretty sure you would agree that corporations have a very important role to play here. It's not all, you know, government involvement, um, government, government programs. So there's, there's just this very interesting thing. And you touched on this earlier as well with the changing incentives that, you know, if a, a corporation and at least as it works today, they have a responsibility to their shareholders, uh, a fiduciary responsibility to generate as much profit as possible. Um, and so, I mean, within that context, if the incentives for them shift so that it is more profitable for them to be recycling, it's more profitable for them to be reusing materials or that sort of thing, then that's perhaps where we mm. see this organic outgrowth rather than, you know, the government mandating or taxing or that sort of thing. Um, and so, yeah, um, really, really just want to give you sort of an open question here. Tell us about this idea of green growth, you know, the, the sort of thesis of your latest book. Sure. So it starts from the recognition that uh, with the current fossil system and the current material system, most of what we take from nature actually just goes to waste. And um, like in the car, 99% uh, of the energy goes to heating the air and the engine and the brakes and the tires and the, and the asphalt, rather than moving me from A to B. Uh, and the same thing with construction uh, houses and the operation of houses and buildings. Most of the energy we take become waste, either as building material waste or as energy waste. And there are now so many incredibly fascinating and disruptive end-user innovations that could provide us uh, with much higher well-being, better lives, with um, just with 90% less of that uh, material and energy use. So let me just mention 21 out of these, so you, you can have a pick for yourself how what space this is. Uh, so. We can transition to electric bikes, we can use taxi buses, we can have rideshare, like uh, with Uber, uh, multiple um, people, we can have car share, we can have the bike share, we can have mobility as a service rather than owning a car or getting a bus ticket or whatever. I can just have a subscription on getting where I want to go. And we also can do what we are doing now, more Zoom and Teams and less traveling. Uh, which bring, all these things bring down the need for, for, for energy consumption and mobility. Then on the um, uh, 
building side uh, and the consumer side, we have um, heat pumps, we have smart homes, we have prefabricated retrofits for old buildings, we have the Internet of Things and smart appliances, we can have peer-to-peer homes and peer-to-peer goods. All these things will bring more value with much less material use, so the sharing economy and the, and the efficiency revolution. Finally, we can everyone turn to net positive houses with the PV on the roof and storage in the batteries with peer-to-peer power electricity trade, vehicle-to-grid solutions where the batteries of the car sell power back to the grid. We can have disaggregated feedback on everything we use so we can then have a demand response which helps bring down the total investments in infrastructure and we can have energy service companies that provide comfortable temperatures rather than selling gas or, or, or electricity. So that was just 21 potentially disruptive end-user innovations. And um, if we roll out these at scale and corporations can do that quickly, if they bring that into their product portfolio and they advertise it and they bring it into their core strategy, those 21 solutions, when they reach an 80% market share, then suddenly we will have a world where climate change is no longer a crisis. We can stabilize the world at 1.5 degrees. And this is actually a study that is in the IPCC special report on 1.5. So with rapid innovation and disruptive end-user um, needs, um, we will bring down energy demand at the same time uh, increase uh, the cleanliness of our environment and give people better, more efficient and probably lower cost lives. All right. Well, those are all the questions that I have for you today. Thank you so much for joining us on the show, Dr. Stockness. A pleasure. And uh, thanks for helping this uh, narrative getting out there. Smarter economics and a smarter climate science, along with uh, better lives, all go together. uh, And we have no time to lose. Absolutely. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.